On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And in today's program, we'll visit with Harvard historian Taya Miles, the author most recently of All That She Carried, which has won numerous awards. But first, here's a look at some publishing news. Publishers Weekly reports that after two years of strong book sales during the pandemic, print book sales fell about 6.5% last year compared to 2021. Nearly 789 million books were sold in 2022, compared to about 843 million the year before. Now, adult fiction outperformed other categories, and TikTok's BookTok drove sales for numerous fiction authors, especially for Colleen Hoover. The prolific novelist had the top three best-selling books of 2022 and five of the top ten bestsellers. More publishing news from the New York Times. New York Mayor Eric Adams has proposed funding cuts to the city's public libraries. The proposed cuts of $13 million this fiscal year and more than $20 million next year have sparked concern among families, elected officials, and library leaders. Libraries could respond to the trimmed budgets by scaling back hours, workers, or programming. And that's from the New York Times. And from Publishers Lunch, quote, After 23 years at the helm, the president and publisher of the Random House Publishing Group, Gina Centrello, has decided to retire. In the industry for 40 years, Ms. Centrello published Salman Rushdie, President and Mrs. Obama, and Prince Harry, among many other authors. And it was reported recently that Prince Harry's book, Spare, sold more books in one day, well over a million, the most ever sold in one day by a Random House title. Well, some of the other current bestsellers include the January 6th report published by Harper's. About 40,000 have been sold since the beginning of the year. Michelle Obama's second book, The Light We Carry, remains a bestseller. Over 26,000 have been sold in 2023. And two history books are on the bestseller lists as well. Stacy Schiff's The Revolutionary Sam Adams and Myth America, 
edited by Princeton historians Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz. Each of those books has sold north of 4,000 copies this year so far. Well, another historical book has garnered several awards, including most recently the Condhill History Prize, as well as the National Book Award last year. Taya Miles is a Harvard historian, and she joined us recently to discuss her book, All That She Carried. And joining us now on About Books is Professor Taya Miles of Harvard. Her most recent book is called All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family's Keepsake. Professor Miles, you have won not one, not two, not three, but at least seven major awards for this book. What do you think was the appeal of the story? Well, hello, Peter. It's really such a pleasure to be here. I think the appeal of the story is that it is so personal, and anyone who hears the story, reads the story, can relate to it, because we are all parents or children. We all have family uh, in some way, shape, or form, and this story is at heart about family and uh, familial bonds, love, and caretaking. How did you discover the story of Ashley Sack? I heard about the story from a journalist down in Savannah, Georgia, who came to a presentation that I gave and waited until uh, the, the crowd cleared afterward to speak with me. He told me that I had to see this object, Ashley Sack, which she had recently seen because a curator had been to town and talked about the sack, which was owned by the Middleton Place Plantation, also down on the southeastern coast. And what is the story of Ashley Sack in a, in a nutshell? The story of Ashley Sack is about an enslaved woman named Rose, who was living in Charleston, South Carolina in the mid 1800s and who learned that her daughter was going to be separated from her, sold away from her. Rose at that time got her hands on a sack and she packed it with various items for her daughter. She gave her daughter, whose name was Ashley, the sack full of things that Ashley would need to survive right on the eve of their lifelong separation. And the story was embroidered onto the actual cotton sack itself by a female descendant of Rose and Ashley many decades later. And it was passed down from family, from uh, generation to generation in this family? It was. It was passed down from mother to daughter in this family. There seems to have been a beautiful, unbroken line of stewardship for this object. And it is, you mentioned, Professor Miles, that it is now owned by a plantation in Savannah. Is that correct? The plantation is right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. But I learned of the sack while I was down in Savannah, Georgia. How did the plantation get ownership of this family sack? Well, this story has so many twists and turns to it. I often say it feels like it could have been on Antique Roadshow. This sack after being cared for by the women in one family for many decades, ended up at a flea market in Tennessee in the early 21st century. A flea market shopper there 
happened upon it in a bin of rags. She lifted the sack. She saw that it was unusual. She read the embroidered inscription and she bought the whole bin. She then went back to her home and did some Googling and realized that the name on the sack, because it had been signed by the embroiderer in thread, was the same name as a very famous, very wealthy Charleston family. And she contacted the people who now run the foundation and plantation of that family, the Middletons, and ended up donating the sack to them. That's how the Middleton Place Plantation and Foundation have come to own Ashley's sack. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Does Ashley have ancestors still alive that you discovered in your research? There are no descendants that I have found who would be uh, direct lineal descendants of Rose or of Ashley. It seems to be the case that Ruth Middleton, the granddaughter and great-granddaughter who sewed the story onto the cotton sack, had one daughter named Dorothy, and that Dorothy did not have children herself. Taya Miles, you won the National Book Award last year for this book, for nonfiction, and your most recent award is from the, is the Kundal Prize out of Canada. Uh, what is the Kundal Prize? Well, the Kundal Prize is a prize for uh, a work of history from anywhere around the world that has literary merit and is uh, excellent in terms of its its research and its writing and its subject matter. Peter Kundal is someone who I just learned about recently. He made a lot of money during his lifetime. He loved history, apparently. Uh, he was a student at McGill University, which hosts this prize, and he left all of his wealth to a foundation which bears his name. And uh, before he died, he actually established this prize for uh, the best work of history according to the prize criteria at any given year. Well, in the announcement of the award to you, the Kundal Prize jury wrote, quote, the world of enslaved women in the antebellum South is, by the standards of U.S. history, extremely poorly documented, but Miles has risen to that challenge. How did you do your research? Well, first I want to say that I am so grateful to uh, the jurors of the Kundal Prize and to the Kundal uh, Advisory Board and Foundation for the support of this work in large part because it was quite a challenge to take up this subject matter. And I had doubts about it all along the way, not because 
it wasn't an incredibly important story to tell. It was, and I felt uh, a calling. I felt um, a, a deep need to tell it, but rather because the story was going to be very difficult to corroborate with existing historical documents and the kinds of primary sources that historians tend to want to rely on to reconstruct the past. And this challenge that I face is one that is shared by scholars of slavery, by scholars of enslaved women who are of African and also of indigenous ancestry. It's because these women were not by and large the producers of records. They weren't able to tell their own stories and they weren't important at all to record keepers of the day. Well, what was available in public records and documents? Well, enslavers, the people who owned others as their property, did produce voluminous written materials. Those records were really about their attempts to keep track of their property, to manage their finances, to organize the distribution of uh, certain products that enslaved people would need over the course of a year, such as clothing or blankets or rations. Um, enslavers kept records around their renting out of people, around their sale of people, um, around the sexes and ages of people at times as it suited their financial and their investment interests. So that means that what we tend to have in the existing archival record are a number of lists and a number of very cold documents that tell us just the most basic, bare bones information about enslaved people. Um, we're lucky to even get a name. We're extremely lucky to get a sense of familial relationships in these records produced by enslavers. And it is, um, it is like a shooting star in the sky to find a full story told from the perspective of enslaved people themselves. So was this a case where you had to extrapolate using your knowledge, uh, given what was available in the public records? To a good extent, it was, because the primary source that exists for the reconstruction of the story of Rose and Ashley and Ruth, the embroiderer, their descendant, is the sack itself. The lines on the sack, and there are very few, really are the main textual accounts that we have about this family, about the things they cared about, and about the actions they took. So in order to try to understand these women, to try to contextualize their choices, to try to respect their experiences as human beings, I did have to uh, extrapolate. I did have to contextualize very deeply and widely. I had to bring in a range of sources that aren't necessarily typically used in historical projects, including material culture items, including literature from the time and literature from our own time written by Black women who have tried to imagine the experience of enslavement. Professor Miles, how long did you work on all that she carried? And at what point during your research did you just want to give up? Well, I worked on the book actively for five years. 
But while I was working on the book, and in large part connected to the question that you just asked me that I just responded to, I found myself really reaching back into my memory banks and into my experiences as a scholar and a professor for decades, as a graduate student and as an undergraduate student, to pull forth those stories, those materials about enslavement and about Black women from different disciplines and different fields that I hadn't necessarily looked at in recent years. So that was um, quite an interesting experience to work on the book in a set amount of years in the present, but to be always hearkening back and looking back to things I had come across uh, over a longer period of my own life. And uh, when did I want to give up? <laughs> um, probably about a year in, <laughs> probably about a year in. And at this point, I had already decided that this story was one that must be told. And I had already spoken with um, some individuals who I knew had done some research on the sack or who had been responsible for curing the sack and just asked them their opinion about whether they thought I might be a person who could do justice to the story, because that's important to me. I think that it really is critical to have a match between the subject matter and the topic um, and the author. And I had received um, a, a very good amount of support and affirmation about that match in this case. And so I had started doing some legwork and started doing some reading. I was reading um, secondary materials posted online by an anthropologist named Mark Auslander, who was doing research on the sack. I had looked at a book by the historian Heather Williams, who had used the sack as a concluding touchstone in her study of enslaved people who had been freed by the Civil War and who were then trying to find their family members. And I had just started to do research on the ground in South Carolina looking at the records of slaveholders, of enslavers that I described just a moment ago in our conversation. And um, I was finding myself coming up with not a lot of primary material from the time period of Rose and Ashley that would corroborate their story. At that time, I really did wonder whether I needed to address this story as an article and whether there was enough material there to actually write a full-length book. Was it a hard sell to sell this concept to Random House? <laughs> uh, well, I, I will say that um, there were a number of editors who reached out to me and, and asked to have conversations about my next projects. This tends to happen if you are a scholar, an academic, you have um, a book out or a few books out, and you are attending academic conferences. Editors will often reach out and just say, can we have a coffee? Can we have a lunch? Can we talk about your next project? And so I had accepted a number of those invitations for an American Historical Association conference. And when I was asked about my next project, I talked about um, this sack, you know, this old bag, and uh, I said that I wanted to try to identify the women who were named on it and to uh, center uh, the sack in my 
history as um, a main character in a way. And I did receive interest. Everyone was respectful and interested, but I also did get a bit of feedback suggesting that this story might be a little bit too small, that it might be too micro uh, for their presses. Um, but the editor at Random House, with whom I was meeting, Molly Turpin, her reaction was the opposite, which she was really, really excited about the idea of a project that was somewhat esoteric and that was not quite fully formed and that would attempt to take one singular object and to open it up into a larger story about individual women and about family, about gender, about crafts, about love, about perseverance, about ecology, about survival, and about what all these things have to do with our experiences today. And joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Professor Miles, what do you teach at Harvard? I teach in the Department of History, and I offer classes on African American history, Native American history, women's history, uh, public history. I love to include literature on my syllabi and to get my students out to historic sites and museums in local areas. So on top of teaching, how many books have you written? Six books, and I've co-edited one collection. And her most recent is All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family's Keepsake. It has won several major awards, including the Frederick Douglass Book Prize, the Ralph Waldo Emerson Award, the National Book Award, and most recently, the Kundal History Prize out of Canada. Professor Miles, congratulations, and we appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Peter. And you're watching About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Next, we want to look at some reviews of some recently published books. The Washington Post Book World, which publishes on Sundays, looks at novelist Paul Auster's Bloodbath Nation. Now, this is a nonfiction book that looks at gun violence in the U.S. and is described by reviewer Alex Kotlowitz as a, quote, sobering, impassioned plea to end the cycle of shootings, restrict the availability of guns, and, as Auster writes, conduct an honest, gut-wrenching examination of who we are and who we want to be as a people. The National Review magazine regularly reviews books, and it says that Timothy Sandifer's Freedom's Furies how Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand found liberty in an age of darkness delves deeply into the intellectual, political, and economic currents that informed the three women's work to revive individualism. William Buckley, in 1943, described the three novelists as the three furies of libertarianism. And the New York Times Book Review looks at Freedom's Dominion, by Jefferson Cowie of Vanderbilt University. According to Jeff Schessel, the reviewer, the book is essential reading for anyone who hopes to understand the unholy union, more than 200 years strong, between racism and the rabid loathing of government. And also in the New York Times, columnist Carlos Lozada reviews Myth America, historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. The editors are Princeton historians Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz. 
Lozada writes that Myth America raises worthy arguments about the use of history in the nation's political discourse, foremost among them that the term revisionist history should not be a slur. So we want to know, what are you reading? What's on your reading list? What books are you looking forward to reading in 2023? Simply record an audio file and email it to us at booktv at cspan.org. We may use it on a future about books. Well, coming up on Book TV's Afterwards program this week, it's Washington Post columnist Philip Bump, who examines how baby boomers have impacted the U.S. economy and political system and how future generations will fare. His new book is called The Aftermath. Here's a preview. When we talk about how the baby boom has approached power as it's gotten older, is there have been a lot of examples of baby boomers sort of uh, uh, building up barriers around their own power. And when I say power, I'm using power in a very broad sense. I'm not just talking about, you know, ha- holding the gavel in the House of Representatives. I'm talking about, you know, home ownership. I'm talking about things like uh, uh, investments, right? There, there are all these ways in which power is manifested in this massive group of people. It's really important, of course, to have the caveat that I'm not saying that all baby boomers are rich. Baby boomers have a lot of aggregated wealth, but that's because there are so many boomers. You know, on a per-person basis, the boomers are no wealthier than any other generation. But because they're such a massive generation, they hold much more wealth, and they have held much more political power, and they've managed to to, uh, make changes to preserve power in a way uh, that reflects the fact that they just simply have so many more people who are interested in doing so. Uh, so you have that issue. You have the issue of baby boomers who are trying to preserve power. Um, but, you know, more broadly, you also simply have this, this increasing challenge between the boomers and younger generations over what power looks like. If baby boomers choose at this point in time, while they still have power, to either side with millennials, side with younger generations, or unilaterally in places where they have the ability to do so, to do things that change what American politics looks like, what American economics looks like, to increase, for example, the supply of housing. There are all these choices that can be made while they have power that then reshape what the future, both immediate and longer term, look like should they choose to do so. And that was Washington Post reporter Philip Bump talking about his new book, The Aftermath. A reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday night at 10 p.m. on Book TV. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. A reminder that this podcast and all other C-SPAN produced podcasts are available on our C-SPAN Now app. And all Book TV programs are available to watch online at booktv.org.